Well, hey guys, welcome tonight. Good to see you all again. We're carrying on here in our biblical leadership uh, series. Excited to be back and continue teaching tonight. This uh, next lesson, lesson 12. As you well know, in this biblical leadership series, we've got a few subjects left, and now they're all dealing with the how-to side of things, the how-to of leadership. We want to start looking at the task of leadership, what it looks like, what you do, how you do it, and provide some guidance along those lines. I remember myself as a young Christian, I found myself somewhat early on in types of leadership roles from evangelism training leader to investigative Bible study leader there on uh, campus at Berkeley, and involved a bit of teaching. And I think we mostly associate the leader in the church with the teacher, right? I mean, if you had to describe the primary function of the leader in the church, you'd, you'd probably say teacher. And don't get me wrong, that's an essential role, which is why so far we've studied a lot about well, how to study the Bible, and even last week, how to teach the Bible. Because indeed, the biblical leader must know how to study and minister the Word of God to others. So certainly teaching is, is a vital role of biblical leadership. Don't get me wrong. But that's not all. There are many other roles or aspects of biblical leadership. And I could say I would have loved back then if someone would have told me or given me some exposure to what the job of a leader looks like. Like, what does a pastor do all day? People ask me often enough, like, you know, I know he spent some time preaching and preparing for sermons, but apart from that, like, what else? You know, what goes into that role? Or not even just the preacher, what about the elder? Or what about that Bible study leader? What do they do? What does their job look like? What goes into it? How do they function? Honestly, no one ever really teaches on that. You never hear about the, the what goes on behind the scenes, what the job looks like. People learn by immersion or by job training, on the job training rather, or by example. And that's fine, but here in the second half of, of our leadership study, I want to provide some actual, even practical instruction and help as to these various roles of leadership that they're not often discussed or even talked about. And so I want to give you some, like I keep saying, practical exposure to this world for whatever it's worth and for wherever you're at as a leader, leader in training, or even not a leader, just some good exposure. And so with this in mind, we come to our next subject for discussion here in Lesson 12, how to counsel. How to counsel. We've covered how to study the Bible, how to teach the Bible. This one, how to counsel, how to biblically counsel. Providing counsel, it's an integral part of a leader's role. You've got people who don't know God's ways, and you as a leader, part of your job is to show them God's ways. Or you have people who know the way, but they're just not living out the way, and part of your job as a leader is to now admonish them to live out the way. This role of counseling, it's really just another aspect of the ministry of the Word. Not too different from teaching. We most often think of teaching as formal and corporate, like, like right now, meaning you've got one teacher formally delivering a prepared message for a, a large group of people. Counseling is, is different in a sense where you've got one person delivering you know, less formal teaching to one individual. But don't be fooled because the task of teaching or the task of counseling is not that far off from the, ta- the task of teaching. Like I said, both are functions of the ministry of the word. In teaching, you're taking the truth of God's word and applying it generally to a group of people, and you're keeping it general because you want it to apply to everyone, and everyone's got a bunch of different issues, so you're staying relatively general. But in counseling, you're you're taking the same truth of God's word, but it's just that now you're delivering that all to just one person, and typically focusing all of it on their individual problems. And so with it's laser-like focus, you're ministering the word to one person and one heart. And so teaching can be thought of ministering God's word like a shotgun, this shotgun blast that's going to hit everybody, a little bit here, a little bit there. But counseling is ministering the word like a rifle, a rifle blast, just kind of one shot aimed directly at one person's heart. Now, with that in mind, I want to start off by establishing some more of the, the basics about counseling. And we call it biblical counseling, just the preface to, to distinguish from the ways of the world. Just a little bit about what it is, how it functions. Give you a quick intro here. Starting with the foundation of biblical counseling. The foundation of biblical counseling. This will keep this short and simple. But here we just mean the Bible. 
Maybe that, that's why it's biblical counseling. We shouldn't have to say this, but we do because so many, like we mentioned this morning, have opted for a counseling that's apart from the Bible, a secular counseling, even in the church, a non-biblical counseling, and we can't really be a part of that. We believe that the inspired and inerrant word of God is the only authoritative source by which we can know absolute truth, that it's sufficient for us, completely sufficient to address any issue of which it speaks. So like we don't claim to know everything there is to know about biology from the Bible or chemistry or calculus, obviously, but that which scripture speaks about, such as spiritual matters and anthropology, you know, humans, who we are, how we, how we tick, how we change, our relation to God. Those issues, we certainly expect the Bible to speak authoritatively on, and it does. Uh, all in all, we're dealing with people, and when, when it comes to counsel, we're not talking about like what to do with your 401k. Like, I, that, that, I, I, that's, not, that's not in the realm of biblical counseling per se. Granted, we can apply biblical wisdom to any issue of life, but we're talking about like dealing with life, with sin, with change, with an understanding of self and God. That, that's the wheelhouse we're in. And, and for that, of course, the Bible is, is the primary tool, the primary diagnostic tool for discerning the thoughts and intentions of one's heart, and also the primary means of then changing that heart and changing those thoughts and intentions. So I don't think we need to go much further on this. You, you know this well, but the Bible is going to be just the foundation of the, this counseling that we're going to talk about. Now, what is biblical counseling? How would you define it? A quick, off the top of your head definition. How would you define biblical counseling? Someone asks you, like, I keep hearing this term, biblical counseling. What, what does that mean? What would you say? Yeah, that's good. How the Bible applies to you, your life, your issues, your problems. Here's what the Bible has to say about that, and here's what to do about that. That's very good. Biblical counseling, we could say it's targeted discipleship focusing on specific problems. You know, discipleship, just that, that process we're all to engage in of helping others become more like Christ. Counseling is just targeted discipleship focusing on typically a specific problem. There's someone they need to grow more like Christ. They've got an issue. And counseling is where you're going to help them do that. It's, it's nothing more than discipleship a targeted discipleship on a specific problem. And, uh, you know, who in the church should do this? Who in the church then should function as a biblical counselor? Everyone. You know, accordingly, if it really is a subset of discipleship, discipleship is for everyone. We've established that. We are all are to make disciples and be involved in discipleship. And accordingly, biblical counseling is for all Christians. You know, like some may be more skilled than others, but this is something God expects all believers to do. Biblical counseling, it's not a spiritual gift. It's an ordinary function of the Christian life, just like discipleship. That's not a spiritual gift. That's a duty, a task that God calls all believers to do. If you've got salvation, the Holy Spirit, and a basic knowledge of God's word, you're equipped to counsel others, just as you are equipped to disciple others. It's just a question of are you going to do it or not, be faithful to do it or not, and even grow. But Paul says in Romans 15, 14, he says, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and he says, able to admonish one another. He's confident, although he's doing it, he's confident you got, you're able to admonish one another. You're all capable to admonish one another. And that kind of gets us to the heart of counseling uh, as to what it is. What are you doing? What's the task? And the answer, if you had to boil it to one word, would be admonishment. Admonishment. Turn to Colossians 1, 28, 29, a, a classic uh, counseling verse. Colossians 1, 28, 29. You can turn there. Apostle Paul, speaking of himself and by way of example, you know, we can derive a lot from, from his ministry. Here he's merely reflecting the heart of a discipler in, in his mission. 
We've seen this verse before when it came to the mission of biblical leadership, and so it's not surprising to see it pop up again when it comes to the task of counseling, which is not far from the task of discipleship. Colossians 1, 28-29, I'll, I'll read them. He says, we proclaim him, talking about Christ, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. What is biblical counseling? It's this admonishment. It seeks to discern desires, thinking, and behavior that God wants to change. And then by God's Spirit, the power of Christ, the Word of Christ, seeks to then change those desires, thinking, and behavior. But we find here a way to, to simplify it, and we're, that's, that's all we can do tonight. We can't cover like a whole world of biblical counseling in a night or two, but we're trying to boil it down. If you had to simplify it by, by talking about admonishment, what then does that mean? How would you define admonishment? What does it mean to admonish someone else? Okay, it's going to definitely involve correction. Okay, it'll involve some encouragement. We might say pointing them in the right direction. So, hey, here's, here's the wrong direction you've been going down. So there is inherent uh, a confrontation, uh, a challenge. Like it, there's going to be, here's, you, here's a wrong way, and you're going down this wrong way, but there's a right way over here. You need to go down this right way. Let me help you. Turn from the wrong way. Go down the right way. It's a basic uh, confrontation and challenge. The word is nuthateo, biblical counseling. We often say is nuthetic. Have you heard that term before, nuthetic? comes from the word nous, mind, and tithemi, to put or to place. And so it's about placing truth in the mind, confronting the mind and, and filling it with truth, to put sense into someone's mind, or you know, we say today, to counsel them. And Jeremiah 79 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. And so we would say the fall had noetic effects, meaning it was a corruption of the mind. Our minds are darkened in understanding. And so therefore, biblical counseling is aimed at the mind. This admonishment, it's not just aimed at behavior. When we're going to challenge someone in love, confront them and, and help them turn from their ways, when we talk about biblical counseling, we often reiterate we're not just aiming, though, at their behavior, but at, at their heart slash mind, their inner person. The task of biblical counseling, then, is to minister the truth of Christ and his word to the heart slash mind of a person, directly aimed at their problem that they might become more like Christ, more conformed to Christ's image. Like it says here, that we may present every man complete in Christ. Really picked up on that phrase, remember, back when we studied the mission of biblical leadership? That's what we're after here. That's the goal of discipleship. It's the goal of ministry. Should it be any different for counseling? I mean, that's our goal too. What, what are you after? Just trying to help someone become more like Christ in a specific way. It's typically very specific. They've got a, an issue and you're trying to help them become more like Christ with that issue. Of course, the word of Christ he says that verse 28, we proclaim him. So the truth of Christ and the word of Christ, it's going to be the primary means by which we're going to admonish them. Colossians 3.16, he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching one another and admonishing one another. See, that's another verse, verse 28. And then Colossians 3.16, admonishing and teaching are side by side. Like I said, they're very similar. And that the word of Christ, the truth of Christ is mentioned. That's, that's the means by which we're going to teach one another and admonish one another. And counseling in this manner, it's also personal and involved. Teaching may be more corporate. Counseling is going to be far more personal and involved. Listen to Acts 20, verse 31, Paul, talking with the Ephesian elders. He says, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that Night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease 
to admonish each one of you with tears. That word admonish is used there. What do you learn about counseling from that verse? From Paul's example there. He says, remember that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Yeah, that there's a clear sense of care. Like he cared about them. Cared about their lives. It, it, when they fell into sin, it grieved him. It, it troubled him. It pained him. When they changed, it rejoiced. What's that? Time. There, there, there's a commitment right there. Three years. Would you labor with someone with three years? Like they come to you with an issue. They're a close friend, close believer. They've got a, an issue, a problem, a, an affliction, a, a, a sin in their lives. And you're trying to help them, but they just stumble with it. And it turns into years. I've, I've, I've seen people and met with people over many years. And sometimes it's the same issue. And they're striving. They're struggling. They're true believers. It's just a real battle. Would you contend with someone for three years and their issues? Or would you just like, I don't have time for this. You can see there's an investment here. There's a real investment. That only comes from care where you love God and love your neighbor as yourself, realizing if this were me and if I didn't know better, I wish someone would struggle with me for three years, if that's what I needed. So just understand, you know, teaching can be, can be easy. You know, it's kind of one and done. You don't have to deal with a mess. You just kind of dump some truth on people. And at the same time, you're trusting the Spirit to work in their individual hearts to correct them. But counseling is very much front lines, boots on the ground, discipleship where there's personal involvement and uh, with someone's life to admonish them personally. Teaching is somewhat general. Like, here's what God's Word says. Here's what it means. Here's how it generally applies to you. The counseling is more specific. Here's what the Word says. Here's what it means. Now, here's how it directly applies to you and your problems. And here's what you need to do to change. That's a bit of the difference. So, biblical counseling is nothing more than targeted discipleship, and therefore it's, it's right up the alley of biblical leadership. It's something all Christians should be doing. Discipleship, counseling, it's for all Christians, but especially for those in leadership. You're a counselor. You will be a counselor. People will ask you for advice, for guidance, for help. Even if you're not a leader, you might get that, and whatever your answer is, that's counsel. You are giving counsel. You ever issue a correction? You're admonishing. You're going to function in this way. It's going to come, and and as you grow as a leader and people see you as a leader, they're going to go to you. You will function as a counselor. Maybe it's not formal. Maybe you're not sitting down for 12 weeks with someone in a formal counseling environment. You're still going to function as a counselor. The question is, is it going to be good or bad counsel? Biblical or unbiblical? Wise or foolish? That comes from your mouth. Are you going to point them the right way or not? And that's why we need to learn more about this. For the leader, though, or the leader in training, it would really serve them well to receive some training in biblical counsel that they might be better equipped to guide someone on the right way when the time comes, when someone comes to you, that you know about some of these issues. You know how sin works in the heart. You know how to change. You know how to help thinks that would probably be a good thing for you to learn, especially if you're going to grow as a leader. And so let's do that now. I want to give you some more equipping, basic, but some more equipping on the essence of biblical counseling. I want to inform you here with some of the touchstones of biblical counseling, just to give you a solid taste of what it's all about. This will be a two-parter. Next week, we'll come back and give you more of that, the real, I'm talking super practical, how-to like, okay, you're, you're meeting with a fellow Christian for coffee, and they're dumping on you some, some problems. They're telling you about maybe some struggles in their marriage or, or a sin habit they have, and they're asking you for counsel. So, like, what would you do? What do you say? How do you help them? Like, can we get some steps maybe? That will be next week, the, the really practical, like, what would you actually do in a counseling situation? We'll get that next week. But for now, I want to continue on with, first, more of the essence of biblical counseling. And it's a massive subject, but we want to boil it down. And we find that, to simplify it, biblical counseling revolves around the concept of how people change. 
how people change, the process of change. So let's talk now about the biblical process of change. We said biblical counseling, it's like targeted discipleship. In discipleship, you're helping another believer learn more about Christ and walk in Christ's ways, aka sanctification. And that's going to cover a wide range of of subjects, but in counseling, it's, it's all way narrowed down. You've got one believer, typically with one or maybe several, but issues that they need to deal with and need to help them grow in Christ-likeness in those issues. And so that's going to involve change. They've got some area of sin in their lives. It needs to change. That's usually obvious. Uh, And through counseling, you're going to help them change, grow, overcome. And so I trust it's obvious, but fundamental to the counseling task is to help people change. And so I would say it'd be pretty useful for the counselor or the counselor in training to know, like, how does that work? How do people change? According to the Bible, how do people grow? What's the process of spiritual growth look like? And do you even know? And so I want to give you the condensed version of this. You know, you got some other leadership meetings going on at the church. We're going through a book called How People Change. And so look, there are entire books written on this subject. It it can be a large subject, but we're going to do our best to condense it. Let's start with understanding the problem. Understanding the problem. Starting with the origin of sin. Now look, I know you all are are well taught here about sin, fall, uh, the effects of the fall. So we can be quick with this. But, you know, before the fall, man was innocent created in the image of God, free from sin. Man was not autonomous. He lived in perfect dependence on God. He lived in God's ways. All was right, of course. In the fall, though, man adopted Satan's wisdom from below, as we learned this morning. In that first sin, there was doubt, distortion, denial, ultimately death. Man rejected God's word and counsel and suffered the consequences you know of the immediate consequences of the fall. Man gained that knowledge of good and evil, but then lost any ability to, to, to change, to do anything about it. Man gained guilt, separation, blindness, conflict. He would come to know nothing but trouble. Trouble with God, with others, with self. Also that the physical world changed. Death was introduced. Decay. Suffering. A world of suffering began. And by the way, as you counsel people, how many of their problems are going to be related to just living in a fallen world, aging, death, all effects of sin? Basically, the world was broken, people were broken, and they couldn't do anything about it. That's what sin did. And then, of course, there were the eternal consequences as well, such as, well, separation from God and judgment and spiritual death. And that's the origin of sin. From then on, we have the continuation of sin. Man became sinful by nature after the fall. And his very nature was cursed and corrupt. And I know you guys know this. We talk about this more than your average church. But we'll do it again real quick. You know, verses like Genesis 6-5, which says, Every intent of the thoughts of man's heart were only evil continually before the flood. After the flood, nothing changed. Where Genesis 8.21 says the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Just our hearts, our inner man is given over to evil, corrupt, depraved from birth. Isaiah 53.6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We're lost. Isaiah 64.6 says, all of us have become unclean. And our righteous deeds like a filthy garment we're, we're not just lost, we're also defiled before God, corrupted. <clears throat> like we said before, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You, of course, know Romans 3, 9 through 20, that large passage that says, just sums it up, that there's no one that's good. No one's righteous. None seek after God, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're spiritually dead. We're by nature children of wrath. The list goes on. We don't need to reestablish so much. But 
there's a real problem here. The problem of sin. Now, why is this even important? Why am I saying this? Why, in a counseling situation, why is it so important to know the, the sin problem and the basics of sin? Okay, that the, the essence of our problem is sin. But talking about the, the sin nature here, why is it so important to understand the, the, the nature of our corruption by sin when it comes to helping someone with their problems? Okay, there's, there's blame shifting that goes on when in reality it's largely, well, it's certainly all, you know, the problems are going to be their own. People can complicate things, but they have their own internal problem. Joey? Yeah, that's good, and we'll we'll come we'll come to that shortly about getting to the, the the real heart nature of their sin. But you know what I'm getting at here is just understanding the sin problem biblically. It lets you know you're dealing with a sinner by nature, and like we know we hear that a lot, so I think we might take it for granted. But as you're counseling someone, they're well, kind of like Marlene was saying, their problem is not just their circumstances. Their problem is not just their environment. Their problem is not just, you know, their spouse or that person who makes them angry. Their problem is their own heart. They, they either have a, a dead heart or a, a, a troubled heart. It can be regenerated yet still uh, have sin within. The point I'm making is understanding the sin problem that lets us know we're dealing with people who have a nature problem, a heart problem, an inner problem. And so the solution, therefore, is going to be what? Likewise, inner at a heart level that that's just that's a fundamental distinction when that we're making here that like i said before it's not just behavior people come in with behavior problems like i you know i can't stop looking at pornography behavior problem but behavior that that's not the problem it's a problem yes but we're going to trace it back there's something going on in their heart at a heart level that's resulting in that behavior and don't take that for granted that's that's where we're going to find change needs to take place. And from here, let's talk about sin. The sin problem is false worship. So we're still talking about the problem and learning how people change. You, you really have to know the problem. How people change. You, you're going to give someone a prognosis. Here's what to do. But if you, if you don't fully understand what's wrong with the person, you're, you're not going to give them the right prognosis. You're not going to give them the right solution. You have to thoroughly understand sin and the sin problem and why someone is sinning if you're going to help them change. Agree? So let me help you connect the dots. I know you've all heard this before, but the sin problem is false worship. Hear it again. The sin problem is false worship. We can trace all sin back to false worship and how helpful this is to understand. Now, simple question. According to the Bible, what's the root location or source of our sin? The heart, yeah, very good. So you guys are taught. Real quick, you can turn to Matthew or Mark 7. I'll turn there too, and we'll see who gets there first, and I'll just start reading. Mark 7, 20 through 23, where Christ taught. Mark 7, verse 20. He's saying to them, That which proceeds out of the mouth, that is what defiles the man. And the Pharisees were so concerned about this ceremonial defilement, the, the outer stuff, like the wrong food or not washing your hands. That doesn't make you unclean. He said, verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. There's many verses like that. It just shows that our, our problem is our heart. And all of our sin issues are coming from the heart. The heart is pictured as man's mission control center. 
you know, the heart slash mind is akin to your spirit, your inner man. And that's what's driving your desires and your actions. Now, what did God create us to do in heart or in mind or in spirit? Worship. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. He created us with a heart slash mind slash spirit. You know, an inner man. He created us to, to do and to use that for worship. To know him. To exalt him. To enjoy him. And to praise him. But of course, after the fall, we use our hearts or spirits to worship everything but God, pretty much. Now, worship, what do we mean by worship? Let me put it this way. This is also helpful to think through. Just listen to this list. What we worship, we adore. You could sacrifice or you could uh, substitute these synonyms for worship. You know, things we worship, we adore, we sacrifice for. We focus on, we submit to, we seek after, we hope in, we serve, we give to, we speak about, we look to for peace, we spend a great deal of time and energy on. All helpful ways to think about what we worship. And good luck trying to write that down, by the way. I was too fast. You can just come see me later. Just come see me later. We we don't got time for that. But see me later, you can get the list for all you uh, list takers and note takers. But it's helpful to think about, that, to identify what we're worshiping, the things we're just devoted to. And God created us where he would be the object of that list. Everything on that list, we should say God. You know, we adore God. We seek God. We, we serve God. We hope in God. He should be you know, the, the, the supreme answer for everything on that list. But he's not. After the fall, various objects of worship Come in, just push God out of the way for all those things on that list. And other things take the place. We're we're now adoring something else and spending all of our time on something else and seeking something else. Other things have taken God's place. And we can now identify some basic categories of things people worship. Here's another list. Good luck. I'm going to be fast, but you can, again, see me later. Things people worship, objects of worship, like security, material things, knowledge, control, wealth, themselves, good health, a literal false god, another person, pleasure, comfort, a pain-free life, an accomplishment, esteem, success, physical appearance, a desired circumstance in life. That list likewise goes on. If I can put it another way, I didn't come up with this, but using all P's, power, pleasure, people, protection, physical health, possessions, popularity, peace, play, prestige. You know, if, if you are serious, come see me later and I will give you these lists because it's, it's so useful to, to think on these and to spend some time meditating. It, it's helpful to just lift the cover. What are you worshiping? What's, what has taken the place of God in that list of things you adore and serve and, and live for? Things that excite you the most in life. Things you, you devote your energy to. It's helpful just to know the, the common categories for yourself and in a counseling environment. Now, what do you call it when a person gives their heart over to these objects of worship? Idolatry. We call that idolatry. The Bible calls that idolatry. What's an idol? You can think of an idol as anything we consistently make equal to God or more important to God in our attention, desire, devotion, and choices. Anything we consistently make equal to or more important than God in our attention, desire, devotion, and choices. Just another way of putting it, to identify an idol in your life or someone else's life. Think about, you know, something. Would you sin to get it? It's an idol. Would you sin if you lost it? It's an idol. Would you sin to keep from losing it? You've identified an idol. There's other ways we can identify something you are worshiping. 
And the person who's living in sin, therefore, they're living in idolatry. All sin can be akin and likened to idol worship, where some other thing has taken God's place in your heart. You are essentially worshiping that thing. And this idol worship can in turn take many forms. This is where you get now to, to the behavior of a person. These expressions of heart idol worship or false refuges in their life. Another list, but expressions of such heart idolatry might be found in food, sleep, drugs, travel, sports, music, reading, TV, another person, alcohol, sex, pornography, shopping, spending money, busyness. It's another list. And listen, a lot of those things on the list are good, like sleep. There's nothing wrong with sleep. God created us to sleep and need sleep. Anything on that list, though, can turn into an idol if you elevate it in its importance to, like we said earlier, anything that you make equal to or more important than God in your attention, desire, devotion, and choices. Even good desires or good things can turn into a sinful idol in someone's life if they start living for it. So let me kind of and, and wrap this all together a little bit. You know, the sin problem, that's what we're still talking about, the problem. It's fundamentally an idolatry problem, a worship problem. It's a very helpful category to think of sin in, according to Scripture. That sin is fundamentally a worship problem, an idolatry problem. All of our sins in life can be traced back to some false, idolatrous worship in our hearts where we're putting something else in God's place. Literally, every sin can be traced back to that. And you'll find many of the desires you you have are are good in, in a sense, but they've been twisted and warped and elevated, and now they're used to replace God. They become sinful desires. And so that really gets to the nature of our sin problem. And why does this matter? Why am, I, why am I even saying this? Why are we talking about this? What's the use of identifying sin as a worship problem or an idolatry problem? Why, why even bother with this in a counseling situation? Yeah, Kevin? Yeah, very good. If you couldn't hear, essentially, it's, it's a difference between helping someone deal with a surface issue versus a root issue. And you can mow the grass all day, and you can take a, a lawn full of weeds, and you can mow it for them, and they'll look pretty for a little while, but those weeds will just grow back. And uh, we, we're covering this. You need to, to know the, the fundamental heart nature of sin, that you can deal with it at that root level. And until you root it out, it's just going to find another expression and keep coming back. And, and therefore, you've not helped anyone change. You've modified them a little bit, but you haven't helped them change. What are we after? Real change in a counseling environment, right? So, hey, maybe you've got someone, they're dealing with a drug and alcohol problem. That's merely the expression of some heart sin and idolatry. So drugs and alcohol, it's not their ultimate problem. In their heart, they're worshiping something other than God. And at the moment, it's taking expression in drugs and alcohol. And hey, maybe through counseling, you can exert enough pressure and behavioral control that you can get them off of drugs and alcohol. But their heart problem would remain unchanged. And so that heart idol will find a new expression. And so maybe they'll now become addicted to work. And look, socially, that's a lot more acceptable but that's still a hard idol. They're still in idolatry. That's still sin before God if they take that beyond where it's supposed to go, if you know what I mean. And so, like I said several times, we're not after behavior modification. We're seeking heart change. And that's why we're talking about this. You need to know how the heart works, how sin has affected the heart, how it takes root, 
and, and how we have an idolatry and worship problem at, at the bottom level. So knowing these idols of the heart is just such a helpful category in counseling. This is where change must take place. You know, if you're here this morning, like we were talking about, much of modern psychology has placed man's problems outside of himself. Meaning, you know, you're not really a sinner. You're not that bad. You're not guilty before God. You don't really have a heart problem, a spirit problem. Your, your problems are circumstantial, environmental. And so the solution, you, know, you don't need a new heart. You don't need, you know, spiritual growth. You just need a new environment. You need new circumstances. And so, you know, if what the Bible, though, says about the human heart is true, that whole philosophy of change would be false and futile. It's like taking someone who has that drug and alcohol addiction and saying, okay, I'm going to whisk you away to a monastery and lock you up. Problem solved, right? They, they now physically, they're like in some desert or an island, and they physically can't even get their hands on drugs and alcohol. So technically, you've cured them. They've been cured of their drug and alcohol addiction, right? You, you've done it. But of what use? Because the heart hasn't changed. And, and the second they get back into the world, it's going to find expression in one way or another. See, that behavioralism, that there's no real change there. The Bible teaches otherwise. And that's what we're after as biblical counselors, that, that deeper change. Where now they're, they're going to be free from that addiction because their heart has been transformed and renewed. And they love God more than self. They don't want to do that anymore. And that, that's a much more powerful place. So let's talk about that now with the rest of our time. We spent a lot of time understanding the sin problem. But now we need to talk about how to counsel someone to then overcome that heart sin problem. So you're dealing with someone. They've got a heart problem. What's, what's the first place you would check? Where, where do you start in dealing with someone on a spiritual level about their problem or about their life? Where do you start? Joey? Okay, if you have got I'm talking more of, you know, kind of where they're at in life. Salvation is what I'm getting after. Maybe it wasn't a clear enough question. Salvation, you know, that, that's the first thing you check for. You're trying to help someone change, help them deal with their problems. Step one, is this person even a Christian? Are they saved? Are they regenerated? Why would we start there in a counseling environment? In our mind, we're thinking, okay, I need to just see where this person's at. Do they know Christ or not? They've been born again or not. Why would we start there? Yeah, I need to know, like, what tool bag do I use here on this person? It's like a patient comes in the ER after a trauma. First thing they do, check the pulse. And look, if there's no pulse... Forget like taking his temperature. Forget like, I don't know, the, the basics. Or like, let's, let's give him a comfy pillow. Like, no, no, just you're going to need to do emergency procedures. He has no pulse. So that's going to direct how you help that patient who has no pulse. But the person comes in, they've got a pulse. Their vitals are stable. They're, they're, they're stable. Well, then you're going to do some other things. You're going to move on to some of their other problems, which may be serious, but it's not like they're dead. And so... You get the drift. If a person is not saved or regenerated, it means they have a dead heart, a lost, corrupt, blind, enslaved heart. And that's their problem. Like, that's their biggest problem. Hey, they may have this addiction or they may have depression, but you know what? They have a a much bigger, deeper problem, a fundamental problem. Until that's changed, nothing else matters. Nothing else will change in a meaningful sense. And likely, if, if that heart change takes place, a lot of their other problems will, just, will be changed, will, will go away, or will, will find resolution. And so, look, if a person is perishing, if they come and you, you can discern, this person doesn't know the Lord, that that already guides you to how to counsel them. First and foremost, it just becomes evangelism. It's just, biblical counseling is then just evangelism. Alternatively, though, if you're counseling a fellow believer you discern this person knows the Lord, loves the Lord, genuine confession of faith. They're walking the walk, but they still just hung up on one sin. Well, now that affects how we counsel them. Well, we're still going to minister the gospel, but in a different way. 
Now, though, we know we've got someone dealing with, uh, we're dealing with someone who has the Holy Spirit. They have a new heart. They just need to renew their heart. And so we're going to do a little something different with them. So you see, there's a vital distinction we make, and it's always the first distinction we make or try to over time. And we need to know who we're dealing with. Do they have the Holy Spirit or not? Do they have a new heart or not? And because that's, that's ultimately our goal, uh, salvation. And uh, we start there. Hey, so along those lines, let's talk now regeneration. How people change. First, you're dealing with someone who doesn't know the Lord. And so how do they change? Well, they change by regeneration. What do they need? They need salvation. They need a new heart. So if that's the case, you've discerned that, how would you counsel that person? More specific, the gospel. Why don't you just share the gospel? It's not a trick question. Like I said, it's just evangelism. Like Romans 1.16, not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Look, that's a work you can't do. They need a new heart. This is one place you can't, you can't make them change. You can't give them a new heart. You can't bring them to spiritual life from the dead. The gospel can, though. That's the power of God for salvation. And God, we've already studied earlier in this series, he uses leaders or just Christians to be the means of delivering that powerful gospel message. And so we trust him for the results. We're going to pray fervently as we share the gospel of someone that God will bring them to life. But our job, though, is simple. Minister the gospel. Share the gospel with that person. And many obviously, uh, ways to do that, so to speak, you know, kind of a case-by-case basis, but there's no substitute. You're just going to give them the truths of the gospel to their heart. And don't take this step for granted. A large portion of biblical counseling is just evangelism in disguise, or not even in disguise. It's just like, let me tell you about the Lord. This is, this is your deepest problem, and if this changes, you're going to find a lot of your problems will be uh, way different. So anyway, f- This is a big step. Don't take it for granted, but we won't spend any more time on it here. Just from here, you would just do evangelism. So you apply all that we've learned about evangelism. Now let's talk sanctification. You're dealing with someone who's a true believer. How do they change? Now we're talking sanctification. You got a person struggling with sin. They don't need regeneration. They need sanctification. They need to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus. They need to be sanctified. And so let's talk a bit about this step. Again, we will focus more on this step next week in a much more practical sense, but give you an overview. I don't don't think you could simplify sanctification any more than this. So three of the the simplest steps of sanctification or or how to grow or how to change. First, recognition. Recognition, the first step. And again, this is kind of couched in a counseling environment. So imagine this is in a counseling situation, which could be like, hey, two believers in a living room. Or you ran into someone at the market and you're having a conversation. Like counseling doesn't have to be in a pastor's office. But you get what I'm saying here. It starts with recognition. What I mean by this is, you know, you as the counselor, through conversation, through questioning, through examination, you're seeking to help the person recognize their sin. And like we talked about, not just at a surface level, you're helping them recognize their heart sin, the idols of their heart, their, their idolatry problem. You got to start with this recognition. We care about the surface problems. We do. They matter. We got to deal with those too, but we got to trace them back, follow down to the root and get to the bottom of the root of their sin, and do this work of recognition. Otherwise, the repentance that comes next is incomplete, because that heart idolatry is still there, festering, infecting them from the inside. It's like a well that's poisoned, and everything that comes out is corrupt water. It doesn't do any good to clean a cup of water. You need to clean the well, and get in there, and just kind of scrape around, and dig out, and just clean that well. And so you need to help them get to the underlying issue. What idol is being worshipped? How has God been replaced? What are they living for? Next week, I'll give you a long list of a diagnostic questions to help uncover. 
So, and by the way, I'll say this. You know all those lists I covered this evening? I'll give you that in print next week just to make it easy for you so you're not all so troubled. And so I'll give you a list next week. But like this first step, recognition, this could take weeks. This could take weeks where you're just, you're getting to know someone. Maybe they're new to you. You got to get to know their life, their background, who they are, their, their influences, what they're doing. And this is where a lot of skill is involved as a counselor, though, to understand the heart at such a deep level and understand humans and anthropology and understand this person's life to, to, to go look at their surface because they're going to come at you with all surface. Like, you know, I am really struggling with, uh, you know, greed. I'm just, I'm, and, and covetousness. I'm so, I just, I get so worked up over it. Okay, you know, that, that's a real issue. And in their mind, they're thinking, I just got to, you know, stop being greedy. I just try hard. Don't do it. You're going to have to work hard to trace it. Like, what's going on in the heart level, though? What's making them so greedy? And it's not just their environment. It's not because their neighbor just got a new car. It's something inside. You got to do that work. And there's skill involved in tracing it down to this heart desire and idol that, that they're worshiping. And it's finding expression in covetousness or whatever. So anyway, first step, recognition. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. Second step, repentance. Once something is uncovered at the surface level and at the heart level, there's repentance. It's another big step, right? A thorough understanding of repentance is needed for the counselor. You're going to help guide them through biblical repentance. And we can't do that here. A lot of resources on that. We've taught on that many times, you know, biblical repentance. So I can direct you to that. A summary. You'll have time to write down these, you know, six steps uh, from Watson, an old Puritan. I like these. You know, the six steps of repentance. The sight of sin. To see it for what it is. To finally recognize, you know, this is sin. Secondly, sorrow for sin. Where it now grieves you. It, 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 you. You see that you've offended God. And it's not a worldly sorrow. But there's real grief. Because you've offended and sinned against God. There's confession of sin. Like First John 1 John 1.9 says. As you know. Where you are now. Saying the same thing about your sin that God says. You are you know, thoroughly recognizing it as sinful. And, and, uh, and turning from it. Asking God to forgive you for it. Uh, through Christ. There's shame for sin, number four, and hatred for sin, number five, where, look, guilt and shame are built-in responses to sin, and they're appropriate responses. But as you turn to Christ, you find them being dealt with. It's appropriate to experience this, you know, sorrow and shame and hatred. Uh, We don't live there, we don't stay there, but after we've experienced them through Christ, through confession, uh, by His grace, they're lifted. And lastly, we could identify turning from sin, which is where you're now, you know, turning from sin. You know, that thing you were doing, that thing you were worshiping, you do no longer. You, you turn away from it entirely and, and uh, sin no more. And thereafter, you bear fruit in keeping with uh, repentance. A real life has changed. That, that summary is far too fast, perhaps, for any benefit. But hey, you can get, I believe it's Watson's, you know, The Doctrine of Repentance. It's a tiny little book that's... Uh, Real helpful on biblical repentance and many other resources, but we don't have much more time than that. Suffice it to say, the second step is repentance, to walk them through now that you've done recognition, you've found the sin issue, even at the heart level, now you're walking them through biblical repentance, God's means of uh, reconciliation and, and cleansing that we need to be right before him. And then the third step would be renewal. Renewal. And again, this is sanctification in its, its simplest form. An idol of the heart is uncovered. Thereafter, it must be destroyed via repentance. Like Israel, they used to worship the idols in the high places, and therefore God said, tear them down, just break them to pieces. That's repentance. But that's not enough, because thereafter they need to be replaced with the true worship of God. And so this is a vital step we might call renewal or replacement. It involves replacing old thoughts, desires, and behaviors with new thoughts, desires, and behaviors. This is a step of mind renewal. And God uses this to transform a person's affections and their love for God. 
And it's that new love for God that's going to to produce new actions, new behaviors, righteousness. We've been saying this a lot on Sunday mornings, so this phrase, renew the mind, should be in your mind. Like Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's you know, Paul's application to Romans right there. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This renewal includes mortification. That's a word we use to describe putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Like Romans 8.13, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We'll talk more about what that looks like next week. It also includes what we may call vivification or vivication. No, I had it read the first time. Vivification. Don't try saying it too many times. That's uh, putting on the new self through the spiritual disciplines. That's the, the, the putting on the new self. Like we learned last Sunday morning in Ephesians 4. You be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. We'll look at that next week as well. But this mind renewal comes from saturating your mind slash heart with the truth of God's word. And so God's word and filling your mind with the truth is an essential aspect of this renewal. It's paired with prayer, the means by which we, we commune with God, we draw near and access his power to change because he's involved in this, of course. And then a, a huge role is found in the local church. As a means of grace, God is given to help you grow and receive encouragement, admonishment, even protection and prayer. All part of how God helps us change as we're renewed in the spirit of our mind. So again, if we can kind of put this together as a counselor through hard work, you're going to seek to uncover the surface and the root sin of a person. You're going to identify their heart issues, their heart idolatry. And then you're going to guide them through biblical repentance, how they can identify and then turn away from that idol, tear down that idol, hate it, ask the Lord for forgiveness, and turn away. And that turning away involves this long-term step of renewal. That's a long-term step, renewal, where you're going to walk with them, helping them renew their minds, replace old thoughts and behaviors with new thoughts and behaviors by the power of the Spirit and by the spiritual disciplines. And this last step often involves homework, accountability, close follow-up. And you're, just, you're walking with them now and to help them renew their minds. We'll, like, like I keep saying, we'll learn more about that next week as well. Speaking of, we will come back next time and get even more practical with this. As if you're in a, you're in a counseling situation, you're one-on-one with someone, they've just dropped on you all their problems. Okay, what do you do? What do you say? Where do you begin? What do you actually say? I want to I cover that next week with some even examples and case studies that this can be very tangible and helpful for you. But for tonight, I hope you've learned from this introduction that at the very least, biblical counseling is for everyone and it doesn't have to be foreign or scary or intimidating. Like it's just for the professionals. You know, unless you're certified, you shouldn't be doing this. Now look, it's, it's really just Christians living out what the Bible says about spiritual growth, about mutual admonishment and encouragement. That's all it is. And sure, this may challenge you to know the Bible better, to know the process of change better, and to grow in your people skills. Great, you know, be challenged. But you can and you must engage in this mutual admonishment. It really is for everyone. And uh, it's really just God's plan for our growth. God has designed us to grow in community. Think about that. That spiritual growth by, whoa, excuse me, by God's design rarely occurs in isolation. You ever think about that according to the New Testament? He's designed that our spiritual growth rarely occurs in isolation. And so often intertwined with all these one another's, like admonish one another. And so you just think about how you can be that person in the life of another and especially those in or seeking leadership, this is part of your role. You are an admonisher. You're a counselor. And so be equipped. Be built up in this, this knowledge of, of God and man and the gospel that you can give biblical counsel 
and admonishment to those needing it. All right, well, we'll you all learn more next time. Looking forward to it. <clears throat> For now, let's pray and uh, be dismissed. Father God, we again are <clears throat> so thankful for your word as we learned this morning. It really is a treasure trove of wisdom. Man and his philosophy and psychology still has not undercovered the true nature of our hearts and never will. Being darkened in understanding and, and cut off from the mind of God, the unregenerate man will never understand human nature. But your word contains this wisdom and it speaks true to our hearts. We, we recognize in it exactly how we tick and, and why we do what we do, why we have the problems we have. It, it nails us like Hebrews 4.12. It says it really cuts us open and lays bare the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And so we're, we're thankful for that. May we draw near to your word that we might understand ourselves, our own sin problems, and those of others as well. We need this skill to grow in this skill that we can help others, help them change by administering the same word to their hearts, which your spirit will use to to grow them and to renew them in Christ's image. We just need to be built up in this area, equip us in this area. We want to be faithful servants in this area, all of us, and especially those in leadership, that they doubly would be uh, built up. And so we trust you for that equipping and even more uh, next week as well. Until then, bless us and keep us. And we bless your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.